I'm Arthur. And I'm Susan. This is the Parent Talk Podcast. Managing the challenges of daily parenting. Thanks to our founding sponsor, Naturopedic, the nation's most trusted source of organic and healthy sleep products for your children. You can visit them at naturopedic.com. That's naturopedic.com. Welcome back to Parent Talk. We are very excited about this episode, which continues our series really in looking at the power of relationship between parent and child in really defining what parents' and children's experience is with each other. And today we explore a question that a lot of people that Susan and I have worked with over the years have raised, even though it's a question neither of us would ever raise. And that is, why does my baby hate me? And so a lot of parents have asked us that. We have never come across a baby who actually hates their parent, but we have seen a lot of situations where a baby sure can make a parent feel that way, or a parent might feel that way on their own. We want to explore how that happens, how to help parents get around that feeling. You know, Arthur, I actually love this topic because I think that there is something like a fantasy around those first few days and weeks of having a newborn at home. It's supposed to be this magical, loving, bonding time where nothing interferes with this wonderful relationship that you're establishing, something that you can imagine is going to go forward for the next 60, 70 years, whatever. So it's supposed to be this perfect time. And I think they get shocked because it is usually not so perfect. (laughs) There's usually lots of things that happen that make a parent feel less competent, less able. And guess what? They sometimes feel like they're not loved by this baby that they're giving everything to. It's It's a pretty scary and upsetting feeling. That's such an important point. And it reminds me of really a great series of episodes we've had here on Parent Talk. We're lucky to have Dr. Andy Garner, one of the world's experts on how relationships actually work. And those who've listened will recall that a big theme is that relationships aren't perfect, that not only is perfect the enemy of the good in the world, but it has nothing to do with relationships, that relationships are all about misfiring, misunderstanding, realigning, repairing. And so here you are, you put it so beautifully, Susan, right at the beginning, all of us, all parents, whether we enjoy the newborn period or not, are confronted with the fact that relationships aren't constructed out of perfect blocks. They're people. We we uh, upset <laughs> right. each other. We misunderstand each other. And here's this new person. No one's ever met this newborn before, right? And how in the world could the newborn know who the parents really are and the parents really know who the newborn is? It's the excitement of discovering each other, not loading each other with expectations. Everything has to be all settled right at the get-go. Yeah, I actually think that that's key, Arthur. I think you really said the key thing here. Not that this is easy to do, but parents have to say, this isn't going to be perfect. I'm going to have bumps in the road. I'm going to have some maybe major mountains in the road. But that does not mean that this relationship cannot be beautiful and perfectly attached, beautifully attached, I should say, and that this is really something that they can accomplish. But you have to get rid of that fantasy of perfection. I'm going to start with the most obvious. 
you know, it's pretty hard to think that you've got this perfect relationship when you are so exhausted. When you bring a newborn home, first of all, I have to tell you that today I'm going to be speaking mainly from the mother's perspective, but fathers are part of this too. And certainly if it's a, a single father or two fathers who are raising a baby, then whoever is actually caring for the baby the majority of the time is really who I'm referring to. But think about a woman who's given birth, whether even if it's a, a simple vaginal birth and not a complicated um, emergency C-section. You're exhausted. Your body has just pushed a human being out into this world after forming it for nine months. And you're tired. Every part of your body, your hormones are raging. Everything is going crazy. And now you've got this little infant. And if this is a first baby, you don't even know what to do. They tell you that the baby's going to wake every two or three hours to feed, but it still feels like all they're doing is eating. You're so exhausted. And let me tell you what happens with this exhaustion is that babies are incredibly sensitive to parents' moods. And when they are picked up by a parent that is at the edge of their sanity, you know, where they're holding a baby and they're so tired that tears are coming down their uh, face, matching the crying of their baby. The baby is going to pick up on that. An exhausted parent who feels like they're being pushed to the edge of their ability to manage and to self-regulate, they're going to have difficulty calming a baby. Well, what can we do about that? I mean, you know, exhaustion is just part of it. You need to know how to ask for help and you need to know how to ask for the right kind of help. You know, what's going to really help the parent? Because I'm going to tell you, unless you are somebody that employs a doula or a nanny and have very little to do with taking care of the baby yourself, exhaustion is just part of the picture. And we might as well mention it here, the extraordinary force and power of a newborn, any baby's cry. That sound co-evolved with our brains. The human brain actually evolved with the baby's cry. The result is that the sound of a baby's cry is about the loudest alarm you can imagine inside our brain. It is unbearably unbearable. Um, <laughs> it's just horrible to hear. It just triggers something huge, right? Huge. There's very few people who could just sit around that and not respond. And of course, there's a reason for that, because if our babies had a pleasant cry, there'd be a lot fewer people around because parents would find <laughs> some way to ignore it. But this is evolved to be about as upsetting as any sound could possibly be. And so if you expose anyone to an upsetting sound, they're going to get upset, of course. But if you're exhausted, an upsetting sound goes beyond upsetting, becomes unbearable. I'm going to tell you, very few people can get away without being exhausted those first few weeks. But not everybody has a baby with significant reflux or colic, whatever. Well, you're the pediatrician, so you give it the appropriate name. But I think this really doubles or triples the impact that it has on the primary caregiver of this infant. Because those infants, infants who are really struggling with this colic or reflux, they're going to cry even when everything else seems to be satisfied. Their diaper may be changed. They may have just had a feeding. That may even be the cause <laughs> of the colic or the reflux. You may be holding them in a position that should make them feel comfortable, and yet the crying still goes on. I know you have a lot of experience with helping parents with reflux and colic. But I can tell you that when you're holding a baby that you cannot calm and you are the mother or the primary caregiver, that feels awful. That feels like, what am I missing? Why am I not connecting with this baby? Why does my baby hate me? Why does my baby not want to calm when I am holding him? So the word colic, of course, is an old one, sort of like right. calling the flu the egg or the grip. And uh, like egg and grip, I can't wait till that word is uh, retired. We're not there yet. 
because we haven't come up with a word that describes what's really going on, which is excessive crying, unresponsive crying, that combination. What's excessive? When a baby cries more than three hours a day and is unresponsive to calming, that's excessive and unresponsive. What we've learned is that there probably isn't any such thing as colic. You know, imagine if you had appendicitis, you went to your doctor writhing in pain, and he said, oh, I figured it out, you have colic, you'd be very upset. Because <laughs> he'd rather the person find out why you were writhing in pain. Colic was a word that was used in old times just to describe a baby writhing in pain. But we now know that in over 90% of the situations where a baby is experiencing excessive and unresponsive crying, it's either from what you mentioned already, reflux, that is stomach acid burning their esophagus, or allergy to cow's milk mm. protein. If a mother drinks milk or eats cheese, the cow's milk protein goes through undigested into her bloodstream into the breast milk. So if you're eating cheese, your baby's getting cheese protein straight in the breast milk. And if they're allergic to it, they will cry excessively and unresponsively. But babies don't come with diagnostic labels. You know, if someone's born allergic to cheese, no one knows that when they're born. And you can't possibly find out in the newborn period or the first few months of life until the mother eats some cheese and the baby starts crying uncontrollably. So for exhaustion, the solution to feeling like your baby's not responsive to you and doesn't care for you is to get some rest and reduce the irritation that exhaustion brings with it. But in this case, now it's on the baby's side. The baby's crying uncontrollably. Their diapers changed. They're fed. They're held. They're rocked. Nothing works. It's over three hours a day. It's time to call your pediatrician and find out whether it's stomach acid burning them or an allergy to cow's milk. I'm glad you said that. I do sort of touch base with some of the Instagram and the reels and people are still calling it colic. And I think it's important to know that it should be a throwaway term. It sounds like we should throw it away and start with something else. No, it's still out there. And there's experts, there's people who've devoted their careers to it, aren't ready to let go of the uh, concept. And I think it's important for parents to know in nearly 40 years of practice, it's less than 5%. Nearly every baby who came to me with uncontrollable, unresponsive, excessive crying, I was able to stop that from being the case. I was able to end the excessive crying by identifying either as reflux or allergy. And then, you know, when the treatment's in place, the crying stops. So if you have a situation where 95 plus percent of the time, what we call colic goes away when you find out the actual cause, it's time to move on from this vague sense of colic towards what's actually happening. I think you're absolutely correct. I have to say, I was very fortunate with my three children. They never cried excessively. As long as I was able to pick them up and I would nurse them or hold them, they were completely content. I was extremely lucky. I look back now as I'm talking to other parents over these many decades, and I can see how how lucky I was with my three infants. But one thing that I did have that made me feel very uneasy about the children that came after my oldest is the fact that when you have an older child, your time has to be divided. I think that that can also cause parents to feel like they're not giving it their all. So what I mean by that is like when you have the first child, everything is about the first child. That first child literally becomes the center of your universe. Everything you do revolves around that baby. When you sleep, when you eat, how they eat, how they sleep. There isn't one moment of your day that isn't centered around this baby's needs or wants in some cases. But when you have a second or a third or a fourth baby, what happens to that infant? You can't possibly give that infant the same sort of undivided attention you did with your first. And I have to tell you, I have spoken to many parents and they feel like this baby isn't attached to me. This baby doesn't love me. 
the way that my first one did. I don't have the same relationship that I did with my older child because I have to let that baby cry sometimes. Sometimes I'm in the middle of giving my two-year-old a bath and the baby starts to cry. I can't leave a two-year-old alone, you know, and they're going on and on about how they are torn between giving attention to both the older and the younger. And if I could only just tell them that it's amazing that human beings, as we talked, are evolved not to need instantaneous attention, that a baby who cries for a few moments while you're keeping the two-year-old safe in the bath is not going to love you one iota less because you've made him or her wait for another five or six minutes or three minutes, whatever it is. It's usually that small amount of time. Yeah, I like to talk about how having the firstborn is the age of wonder and the second and subsequent children are the age of survival. <laughs> so, I love that. And again, quality relationships is forged across thousands of interactions. It's the pattern of interactions that emerge from hundreds and thousands of times together. It's never one event, unless it's a really, you know, violent, right. traumatic event. But in the course of normal life, people don't think of one event as defining the entire relationship. It just doesn't work that way. So if you're saving the life of your two-year-old in the bathtub and the newborn has to wait for you for three minutes, they won't remember that at all. That comes under the distinction between trauma and disappointment. The newborn might be crying, but those are tears of disappointment. They're not cries of trauma. They're not going to stick around. They're not going to define the relationship in any way, shape, or form. I absolutely agree with this. And I'm thinking of my third child. Now, I had pretty big age gaps between my children. So I had a school age, a preschooler, and a newborn. And I remember I had to just take him everywhere. That poor child, I don't think, ever had a scheduled nap, which, of course, most parents would go, oh, my God, that's the most horrific thing you could do. How did you get any rest? How did he ever learn how to sleep? I don't know, but he can sleep pretty well on his own by now and has done for many, many years. I realized I had a choice. Either my older children couldn't go to their dance lessons and their music lessons or get them to school and back or play dates or the infant would just come along with me. And guess what? I think he turned out to be pretty smart and special because he was exposed to so many more people and so many more experiences and so many more sights and sounds and people speaking to him. Not only don't I think it was traumatic for him, I don't even think it was disappointing for him. I think it was actually very beneficial for him in the long run even in the short run. Well, Arthur, I want to bring up a subject that's so big that actually it could have several podcasts just devoted to it. And that is the postpartum blues. And then of course, the more serious postpartum depression. I think that many women do struggle with postpartum blues. And it's that time when you're tired and the baby is crying and somebody else picks up the baby and the baby settles more easily than you're doing it. I feel like that can really be a a really critical time when a parent can look at the baby and say, I don't know what's going on. I don't think this baby loves me. And then I think that there's the other side of the coin, which where a parent can hardly even admit this to him or herself. Do I really love this baby? What did I do here? What did I bring into my life? Can I love this baby? And can this baby love me? Those are really huge but important questions. I think one of the biggest breakthroughs in the emergence of women as full citizens in our democracy has been the realization that there's a deep reality, a tragic reality, really. No one wants it to be this way. But the way we're wired, becoming depressed as a result of the hormonal and physical disruptions of pregnancy 
is common. And no one can really explain why that is from an evolutionary point of view. It doesn't really suit anybody's purposes, but there it is. And and the numbers are rather staggering. As many as 12% of all women who get pregnant or deliver experience depression within a year. Real depression, not just the baby blues, right? Depression, baby blues is like- It's pretty common. Yeah. Extremely common, but one out of, over one out of 10 women will experience significant depression the year they're pregnant and deliver. And about as many as one in five, 18% of women report postpartum depression after delivery. If you're in a low income family, that doubles. Low income families, the chance that you're going to experience postpartum depression is 25%. And if you have a combination of being a teen mother and low income, depression occurs 40 to 60% of the time. So Hmm. overall, it's one in 10, over one in 10, rises to one in five and doubles to 25% with low income. So it's not something that happens just to a few people. It's a common thing. Unless you're at the highest risk group, most women don't experience it. So we don't want to say this is a universal experience, but so many do that now it's the official policy of the American County of Pediatrics that every pediatrician is now expected to ask women when they come in for their well child care after birth and for really through the first year because these bouts of depression can start during pregnancy, they can start after delivery, they can happen six, nine, 12 months after delivery. And I think when women weren't given full rights as citizens in our democracy, their views and concerns were denied. And so that's why we had this sort of fantasy that everyone's awfully happy that they gave birth. But now that our eyes are open, I'm, I'm really just thrilled at the progress here. A lot more women are getting help with this. Now it's something we recognize. Pediatricians are asking about it. And I think there's a lot less shame in having those feelings. So th- this is a big issue. I think it opens the door for people to being realistic that this happens and getting help when it happens. I'm really glad that you think that there's a shift in this. This is supposed to be such a joyful event. And we're talking about parents who wanted this child. This is a child that was planned for. Perhaps they look around, they say, I'm in a loving relationship. My husband and I can afford this baby. We planned for this child. The child is now here. And yet I don't feel as attached to the baby as I can or as I should. And I feel like the baby isn't attached to me. And frankly, when you really have true postpartum depression, and I've worked with some parents with that, those things are interfered with. And what should be the first step? And and this is not just for the person who's experiencing it, but if you can identify it, you're a a mother-in-law or a parent or the husband, what should be the first step for a mother experiencing this? So there's really two steps to responding to this. The first is the trickiest, which is recognizing it's happening. How do you know if it's depression or just exhaustion? And that's where I think the screening that pediatricians do comes in very handy. But certainly, if a woman who's given birth or even during pregnancy begins to feel or wonder whether she's experiencing symptoms of depression, she should speak to her obstetrician. If if her partner feels as though this is happening, she should talk to her obstetrician. Certainly if her pediatrician says, hey, you've got symptoms of depression, she should talk to her obstetrician. Most obstetricians in the United States have resources identified ready to go to help you recover and reverse and end your depression experience around pregnancy and delivery. So there are things to be done, uh, but they all rely on recognizing that's what's going on. 
The good news is, really, of all the major problems people face with their health and well-being, postpartum depression is very manageable in most instances. There are rarely instances where it's hard to manage and can become quite severe. But by and large, for that vast number of 12 to 25, even 60% of women who experience this, depending on the risk category, treatment's extremely effective. And I think that that's actually the key. I think that people may recognize it. But again, I think that we get sort of stuck in this societal or cultural norm that says you should be thrilled and walking on air that you gave birth to this healthy baby. And if you don't feel that way, I think it's pretty hard to admit that. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Happily Ever After is a model for perfection. And the only reason that even is given any thought is because the story ends before you find out if it's really happily ever after. <laughs> there can be no happily ever after if the story continues. The happily ever after is not quite as simple as we like to see it on the TV screen or the you know in a movie theater, right? And you know, a great book I just read, which I can highly recommend to our listeners, is the book Eve, like an Adam and Eve. Uh-huh. And it's a treatment of the evolution of the human woman. And a piece of the puzzle is that alone amongst all animals, human pregnancy and birth are more difficult than any other animal. You know, think about a horse who drops a foal and then the foal's up and running around. So not only is our baby too big for our pelvis, but they're not ready to go. That goes back to our exhaustion point. They don't come out ready to roll. They require as much work almost as pregnancy to maintain and sustain in those first few months. So it's a setup. In other words, evolution has put people in a position of great difficulty. I mean, let's be clear. It's a joyous thing to have new life, but evolution sort of stands in our way of it being free of pain and challenge. I can't believe you're setting me up to talk about two different things that also can impact a mother's and a father's too, a feeling about being attached and the baby loving them back. One is a traumatic birth experience because birth can be beautiful and easy for some women, but unfortunately, as you just pointed out, for some women, it can be quite traumatic with emergency C-sections and babies being in trouble and mothers being in trouble. So sometimes after you've had a traumatic birth experience, there may be the expectation, but look, you're okay. The baby's okay. But is the mother okay? (laughs) And is the baby okay? I mean, we need to be kind to ourselves and give plenty of space and time for that healing process when things go far from that picture of perfection was in the parent's mind. And I just have to add this on because we're getting close to the end of our podcast, feeding challenges. Now the expectation is that a mother is going to either breastfeed, either nursing the baby or pumping and feeding the baby. And sometimes that just doesn't work out. It could be that the mother's on medications. It could just be a lack of a supply. It could be any number of reasons. And again, we have to be kind to those mothers and those mothers need to be kind to themselves to know that if they are caring for their baby and feeding their baby and nurturing their baby, that attachment is still going to be there. You know, I just have to say, over the years of practice, I always was uh, stunned and uh, startled to see how the C-section is the only major surgery I know of that's considered routine. A lot of people hope to get through life without any surgery, right? And yet, if you're delivering in America, in most hospitals, well over a third of deliveries are now by uh, C-section. And if I have an appendectomy, friends are bringing dinners over for me and the community thinks I'm incapacitated while I heal. Not so with a C-section. Oh, that's just part of the normal. It's almost like a nickname, a C-section. It sounds like something a lot of people do and it's no big deal, but it's a major surgery. It takes a long time to recover and a lot, millions and millions and millions of women go through it every year. And not just physically, 
physically, but mentally too. If you had an envisioned a different birth plan and you end up with a C-section, that can interfere with your feeling like I let my baby down. I didn't give birth in the natural way. I mean, all of these things are things that we as the society that surrounds and supports young parents have to be aware of. And I wish that I had some magic answer to how do we absolve parents of these negative feelings. The only thing that I can really say is that babies have evolved to the point where they are hardwired to seek out their parents' love and to attach to them. There is no way that your baby hates you. It is so critical to your baby that their actual survival depends on the fact that they are going to attach to you if you're there to be attached to. You're going to hit some bumps. You're going to hit some huge bumps. You're going to get into some valleys maybe, but you have to realize that your baby will love you and does love you. Attachment is not quite as fragile as people would like you to think. Oh, it's such an important point, Susan. And I'm so glad we're ending the uh, episode on this note. All the disruptions around connecting that we've been talking about are on the parent's side, right? Right. On the baby's side, the certainty that they will seek to love you, that they will love you, is as certain as them taking a breath. Right. And that's really the bottom line. And those minor disruptions, you can get through them and smooth it out so that attachment is real and that love and that bond is lifelong. So our takeaway is the uh, stuff relationships are made out of simply is not perfection. It's ups and downs, it's misalignments and repairs. And there's lots of ways in which a relationship will get disrupted around delivery and birth in the first few months after birth. That's mainly on our side as parents. Children come to us eager for love and exceptionally good at seeking it. Arthur, thank you. I can't wait to delve into this subject a little bit more. Maybe we'll work on toddlers and preschoolers next time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to the Parent Talk Podcast. You can find back episodes and send us your parenting questions at parenttalkpodcast.com. And don't forget to visit our founding sponsor, Naturepedic, at naturepedic.com.